I'm excited to be able to share the pulpit today with Stan and John Micah as we, as, as uh, was said a few moments ago by Tony, as we take a journey from the cross to the grave to the sky, we lift his name up on high. You know, in so many ways, I love this image here because it beautifully depicts what happened the last week of Jesus' life. When you turn over in the Gospels, more is written about that last week than anything else in the life of Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of John, it's almost half of the Gospel is that final week. And of course, it began last Sunday on Palm Sunday with Jesus entering into Jerusalem and then going through the week to the Passion and the Crucifixion to His burial and finally to His resurrection. And today, we want to kind of look at each of those aspects, but to look at it in light of the mission of God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians talking about resurrection. I mean, that's the whole theme of 1 Corinthians 15. He begins by saying, can I tell you the most important part of the gospel? Notice what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. Write it down. This is what it's all about. And then he goes on that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And I want to ask you to focus your attention right in the middle of that text, died for our sins. I want to reflect just for a few minutes on why Jesus died. And you see that that phrase there, he died for our sins. Now, if we're not careful, we reduce that to he died for my sins. Now, that's true. Jesus did die for my sins. He died for your sins. But there's something significant in realizing that it wasn't just for my sins. Because if we're not careful, we get caught up in what C.E.B. Cranfield called the idolatry of self-centeredness. Now, if you're looking at that word centeredness and going, that's misspelled. No, that's the British spelling. He's a British theologian, or was, passed away just a few years ago. But he recognized, like so many people do today, that, that the world is now focused on me. You know, it's my needs, it's my wants, it's my interests, it's my sins that Jesus died for. And yet, if we're going to think about the mission of God, we've got to realize that it was so much bigger than that. In fact, I want to use one text to illustrate it in detail, but I want you to notice what the Apostle John said before we go back to the book of Isaiah. John, as he was writing about Jesus' death, said this, After his resurrection, he ascended to heaven where he makes atonement, intercession for our sins. And he says, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then it's almost as if the Holy Spirit prompted him, which of course he did, to reflect bigger. And notice the next phrase there in 1 John 2. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, sometimes we need to realize that his calling of my life and his calling upon your life is a bigger calling than just to sanctify and save, or save and sanctify me, but to also make me aware that I now have a responsibility of joining that mission to take that message to the world. Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, 800 years before it happened, 
did perhaps the best job in trying to illustrate what Jesus did on the cross. Notice the language there. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now I want you to notice, first of all, what happened to Jesus. He took up our pain. You know, physical, spiritual, mental. I mean, all the pains that we suffer were actually placed upon him. He bore our suffering. Again, personal, physical, mental, spiritual. He was pierced as the soldier came up to make sure he was dead. He was pierced for, yes, my transgressions, my mistakes, my crossing over the line, but yours as well. And then notice, he was crushed. What a powerful word. Crushed for our iniquities. That's what happened to him on the cross. And then notice the last two phrases there. The punishment. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. I mean, you see what we did to him in those first four words in red. Then you see what he did to us in the last two words in red. But I want you to notice particularly, it's for our not just mine it's mine yours and people who are not assembled here today people who are assembled all around the world but people who are not assembled in churches around the world you see he died for the sins of everybody from Adam and Eve all the way to the last person that will be born who sins before he comes back and everybody in between which is why we have a mission to proclaim his story Isaiah would go on, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. There's that me. You know, that's self-centeredness. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we go back to 1 John 2, 2. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Excellent job, uh, Les, to uh, move us from personal to corporate. Uh, I want to continue that. Um, two weeks ago, we, we contemplated the mission of God, and we talked about what if the mission of God is love. And I don't know about you, but when I was little, uh, I believed, I, I was baptized at an early age, and I always wrestled with something that seemed rather odd to me. It almost seemed like a complete contrast. It was, if God is love, then how does he kill his own son? But see, God is love, and what we've got to understand is that God took any and every means necessary to rescue us. And so before we get to the two primary texts that I want to look at this morning, we've got to do a little bit of groundwork. We've got to understand the death of Jesus in a little bit different way maybe than we typically do. And that is that thanks to Les telling us it's our sins, it's corporate, it's the world, there was a lot of stuff going on that we don't really like to think about, or maybe um, there's something in the air, there's something in the world that doesn't want us to think about it, and that is that Jesus looked around, you remember where he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. 
They're just bumbling into things and going with whatever they're being led by, what, whatever is going on. What, what was happening continues to happen in the Bible from the very beginning, and it just repeats. It's a theme that goes over and over again. God makes a way, and humanity disobeys. God makes a way, and humanity disobeys. And finally, humanity is in such a bad state that God says, okay, I'll have to do it myself. They cannot, they cannot do it. They will never do it. But it's not just that we wouldn't obey. It was that something was helping us not obey. So if you think about that theme and you think about what really went on, why did Jesus have to die? As Dust said, why according to the scriptures did that happen? Well, we were in a covenant with God. We're created to be the pinnacle of his creation, to image him to the rest of the world and to spread, to spread his kingdom out. And instead, humanity gave our allegiance to the devil instead of to God. And to the devil's little g-gods that are all of his group of people that made sure that we stayed confused and we stayed centered on us and it was about us. So God looks down and says, I will do it. I will become human. I will incarnate the second person of the Trinity and be a human to be obedient to God, to give people a way to have a relationship and be in the family with Yahweh. Now, if you think that sounds sort of bizarre, it's in Scripture multiple times. If Noah and his family hadn't been on the ark and God shut them in, they would have drowned. Nobody could tread water for 40 days. If the Passover, if the blood had not been over the doorposts of the people in, in the houses, regardless if it was one person or if it was 50 or if it was 100, the death angel wouldn't have passed over them. They could not have defended themselves against the, the death angel. Jesus is doing exactly the same thing. Except, ironically, Passover and Easter are the exact same word from the original language. And so what today is, is the once and for all time Passover of everybody who's in Christ. So with that being said, Easter changes absolutely everything. It, it, it saves us from the enslavement to sin and to death and to the devil and his little g-gods that owned this place. It, it strips him of the authority that he had here. Now all authority on earth and in heaven is given to Jesus. And Paul says it this way. He says, this is how important it is. Now if Christ is preached is raised from the dead, how is it that some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. In brackets there, useless, amounting to nothing. And your faith is also in vain, imaginary, unfounded, devoid of all value and benefit, not based on truth. We are even discovered to be false witnesses, misrepresenting God, because we testified concerning Him that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and powerless, mere delusion. You are still in your sins and under the curse and punishment of sin. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If we who are abiding in Christ have hoped only for this life, and this is all there is, this is as good as it gets, then we are of all people most miserable and to be pitied. But now, as things really are, Christ has in fact been raised from the dead, and he became the first fruits, that is, the first to be resurrected with an incorruptible, fully redeemed human body 
foreshadowing the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Christ in death. See, all of us who are in Christ, we're in the ark. The waters can't drown us. We have the blood over our doorposts. The death angel can't touch us. Those who aren't in Christ don't have that protection. So let's look at what Les said in his segment about punishment. Discipline is not punishment. If we talk about spiritual disciplines, we're not punishing ourselves. We're learning ways to complete our transformation during this journey of life. We're, we're looking at ways of changing our behavior. If we look at punishment in the Bible of what Jesus took for us, it's very simple. James says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Well, if we're guilty of all of it, then look at what happens in Romans 6. For the wages of sin or the punishment of sin is death, but God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's important because when we look at this statement that we don't like to say very much because it starts all kinds of other conversations we unfortunately don't have time for right now, but punishment ended on the cross. If we're in Christ, discipline is different from punishment because God finished punishment. Jesus said it is finished. Punishment ended on the cross for all those who accept Christ as Savior. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. First Peter says, Christ's suffering paid for our wrongdoing. Punishment looks back at what all was messed up and what all was going on. But discipline looks forward to who he's calling us to become and what new creation will look like. Proverbs says it this way, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. All he's doing is he's helping us become exactly what we were created to be. So again, Easter is the day that changed absolutely everything. In the Old Testament that Les also alluded to, there was good news then. And all we're seeing now is the, the uh, totality of that good news. If you look back in, in Isaiah 52, someone comes running over the hill and basically says, hey, despite Jerusalem's destruction, despite the exile that we went through, Israel's God still reigns as king and God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne and bring peace. Well, guess what? That's exactly what Jesus did. That's the good news. The good news isn't that we don't understand why God had to kill his son. The good news is that God loves us in a way that he even offered his own son in order to rescue us, because we could not save ourselves. So look at what happens here in Colossians 2. For in him, all the fullness of deity, the Godhead, lives Lives is in yellow there. Well, it should be. Sorry. Lives on mine is in yellow. Lives is in yellow because of, of the tense that it's in. It lives in bodily form, completed, expressing the divine essence of God, and at the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity assumed humanity and is forever the God-man. Jesus, right now, still has the scars in his hands and in his side. He is a human right now. And in him you have been made complete, achieving spiritual stature through Christ. And he is the head over all rule and authority of every angelic and earthly power. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, but by the spiritual circumcision of Christ in the stripping off of the body of the flesh, the sinful carnal nature. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him to new life through your faith in the working of God as displayed when he raised Christ from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, worldliness, or manner of life, God made you alive together with Christ, having freely given us uh, 
all our, forgiven us of all our sins, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of a legal demand which were in force against us and which were hostile to us. And then luckily here in yellow, and this certificate he has set aside and completely removed by nailing it to the cross. He didn't nail the Old Testament to the cross. He nailed our debt, what we would have needed to pay as the punishment for switching allegiance from him, from disobeying him, to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, those who did all this and continued to perpetuate this with us, those supernatural forces of evil operating against us, he made a public example of them, exhibiting them as captives in his triumphal procession, having triumphed over them through the cross. I couldn't think of a better way to say it than the way Tim Keller says it. He says it, sums all that up this way. The gospel is the ultimate true story that shows victory coming out of defeat, strength coming out of weakness, life coming out of death, rescue from abandonment. And because it is a true story, it gives us hope because we know life is really like that. It can be your story as well. God made you to love him supremely, but he lost you. He returned to get you back, but it took the cross to do it. He absorbed your darkness so that one day you can finally be uh, dazzling, become your true self, and take your seat at his eternal feast. It's interesting to me that what basically that says to me is this. The hope that's in the Old Testament comes to its full conclusion in Jesus. And it's said this way in John. Rejoice, he is risen, for I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me lives, even if they die. What was out of control and cursed is being mended. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The freedom of the cross allows us to participate in God's mission without having to worry about paying a terrible price. The only danger remaining for us are the consequences of action or inaction, not isolation and judgment. We are in the family. He is our brother. We may collect some scars, just as Jesus did. By his wounds, Jesus raised humanity from the point it was at at his incarnation up to the point that it's at now, which is where he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. What was broken is now better than what it originally was. I'm reading Matthew 28, 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, as the first light of the new week dawned, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came up to keep vigil at the tomb. Suddenly the earth reeled and rocked under their feet as God's angel came down from heaven, came right up to where they were standing. He rolled back the stone and then sat on it. Shafts of lightning blazed from him. His garments shimmered snow white. The guards at the tomb were scared to death. They were so frightened they couldn't move. The angel spoke to the woman, to the women. There's nothing to fear here. I know you're looking for Jesus, the one they nailed to the cross. He's not here. He was raised, just as he said. Come and look at the place where he was placed. Now get on your way quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. He's going on ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. That's the message. The women, deep in wonder and full of joy, lost no time in leaving the tomb. They ran to tell the disciples. Then Jesus met them, stopping them in their tracks. Good morning, he said. They fell to their knees, embraced his feet, and worshipped him. 
Jesus said, you're holding on to me for dear life. Don't be frightened like that. Go tell my brothers that they are to go to Galilee, and I'll meet them there. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what on earth does any of this look like in real day, everyday life? Your life, my life, every day when we wake up. I love art. And I don't know about you, but when I think about new creation, and when I think about the beginning of something brand new, I'm often reminded of this image of a potter who is sitting behind a wheel with a lump of formless clay, forming it into something brand new, something unimagined or maybe at least imagined in the mind of the creator, but my mind instantly goes to this image and to the skill for our artist who takes the, what's in his mind or her mind and creates this cup or this bowl or whatever it may be, this one-of-a-kind, this finished product thing, right? But that's usually not the end or the whole story, Right? I'm going to read a text to you out of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. I want this to be the backdrop for everything else that follows. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 2, 4 through 7 through, sorry, chapter 4, 7 through 12. But this beautiful treasure is contained in us, cracked pots, made of earth and clay, so that the transcendent character of this power will be clearly seen as coming from God and not from us. We are not crushed by them. Sorry, we are cracked and chipped from our afflictions and on all, on all sides, but we are not crushed by them. We are bewildered at times, but we do not give in to despair. We are persecuted, but not persecuted, but we have not been abandoned. We have been knocked down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around in our bodies the reality of the brutal death and suffering of Jesus. And as a result, his resurrection life rises and reveals its wondrous power in our bodies as well. For while we live, we are constantly handed over to death on the account of Jesus, so that his life may be revealed even in our mortal bodies of flesh. So death is constantly at work in us, but life is working in you. Just keep this text in your mind if you don't mind. Makato Fujimura is considered one of the leading artists in the tradition of what they call slow art. And he's developed this incredible rare patience and slow skill. And he's classically trained as a painter, but he is inspired to make art out of brokenness. 
catch that? He's inspired to make art out of brokenness. In fact, he is a master in what they call Nihonga, which is this traditional art coming out of the 17th century Japan of pulverizing and crushing minerals and pigments, basically making their own paint. And they would often use gold and silver and platinum and oyster laying over and over again on top of each other, layers upon layers, sometimes 80 to 100 times. And out of this particular art form comes kintsugi. This is something that Mikado talks about quite a bit and that he is also a master in. Started in China, moved to Korea and then into Japan, and it became this beautiful way of preserving beauty and humanity in a time of war and tyranny. And took on this art form of repairing broken ceramics, and it became known as kintsugi. And here's what it means. Ken is gold, and sugi is mending. You've heard the word mending a couple of times this morning. So kintsugi is this ancient tradition of mending. Repairing what's broken, but in the process, coming up with a new creation that is more beautiful, valuable, and complex than the original. However, it's, it's much more than an art form. The art of mending became a style of its own to the point that the Kintsugi cup would become far more valuable than the original because of the time that it took families of the Kintsugi master to hold on to the broken fragments of pottery, and they were often held for generation to generation to generation before the pot was reconstructed. As Mako was talking about this, in one of the interviews I saw with him, he was holding a bowl in his hand that was literally 400 years old. That's how much time it took to put this thing back together. It's this beautiful, beautiful metaphor. So rather than return the broken cup or bowl to its original state, rather than try to reach its perfected form as if nothing had ever happened, back to this particular image, Kintsuge values and accentuates the fractures and the fissures that were found because of the brokenness. And so rather than taking this brand new cup, the artist, the master artist, sits down with this. I don't know about you, but this picture sometimes better reflects and tells the story of my experiences in life. Broken. Broken fragments. You look down at something like this, and if you're thinking about life, you often look at life like this and think, how on earth can something like this ever be put back together again? After all the mistakes that I've made, after all the things that I've said, after all the people that I've hurt, after all the relationships that are damaged, how could anything ever good come from this pile of rubble. And the Kintsuge master very carefully takes the pieces and begins to reconstruct the piece of art. Layers upon layers until the bowl or cup begins to be pieced back together. They don't erase the cracks. They don't erase the fissures. They accentuate them until the finished product looks something like this. A brand new piece of art with the cracks and the fissures, the fractures, all accentuated. 
I hope that this is beginning to make some connections with you because this is what we're talking about. This is Mako's words. As an artist, I know that our imaginations give us many generative ways to deal with the past. It matters what we do with these remembered images. The imagination can cause hatred to expand or create empathy. It can forgive or be hardened to remain bitter. Or it can rewire how we view ourselves and our world. So our past and these images matter. And we're talking about scars. I don't know if you've heard the song Scars. This is just the first few lines of this beautiful song. It says, waking up to a new sunrise, looking back from the other side, I can see now with open eyes. Darkest water and deepest pain, I wouldn't trade it for anything because my brokenness brought me to you and these wounds are a story you'll use. So I'm thankful for the scars because without them I wouldn't know your heart and know they'll always tell of who you are. So forever I'm thankful for the scars. Sometimes it takes us a while to get to that point in life to be thankful for the scars and the brokenness. And as Stan and Leslie have already talked about the wounded, broken body of Christ, it's, it's amazing to think about as he returned and came back to his friends, the very first thing they began to look at and touch were the wounds on his hands and on his body because those wounds and those scars in his new post-resurrected body had not been removed, but they tell a story. So Jesus is the first fruit of all new creation, more precious, more beautiful, and more complex in his new form than his original form ever was. And so Jesus' resurrection, that's why we're here today, right? Jesus' resurrection tells a brand new story of new creation. So if you think about his entire ministry and mission on earth, mending and restoring brokenness. He didn't erase people's stories. He didn't erase their scars. He never encouraged anybody that he healed to go away and forget about what had happened to them or why those fractures and fissures were there because they told a story. So rather than just fixing it, rather than just making it right, or rather than just erasing it, you and I hold the broken fragments of life in our hands. Jesus holds the broken fragments of life in our, his hands and it's a mystery. But I'm beginning to think and realize and know with confidence that all the things that you and I go through in life, maybe the things that you're going through right now that you can't look beyond, maybe as you look back and think of all the things that we go through in life, even the fractures remain in some way to glorify God. Because He mends, He redeems, and he makes something new out of brokenness that we could never see. So creation out of brokenness is this journey of allowing God to work with our fractures and our fissures in our life. And this is resurrection life. This is the work of Easter. This is the new beginning that takes place in my life, in your life, as the master creator sits back down with the pile of shards and begins to piece them back together, but in something brand new and something far more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And so we see Jesus before us, seeing and touching his wounds and his scars that he collected for you and I. And as you and I begin to work with the fractures and the fissures of life, we think about what it means for us to be on mission 
in this world. And so we enter that mission with Jesus, attentive and aware, walking with others who are experiencing fractures and brokenness in their lives. We don't ask them or encourage them to erase their stories or erase the scars, but we walk with them as they begin to allow Jesus to put those things back together into something brand new that we could never possibly imagine. Listen to Mako's words regarding new creation. He says, new creation fills the cracks and fissures of our broken, splintered lives. And a gold light shines through, even if only for a moment, reminding us of the abundance of the world that God created and that God is yet to create through us. Here's one thing I'm confident of. I may not be confident of much. I've been shaking the entire time I've been up here. No matter how many times I stand up before people and do this, there's something so prevalent about this message for all all of us in this space. I can guarantee you that everybody who's sitting in this room, young and old, has brought fractures and fissures and brokenness and splinteredness into this space. It levels the playing field for every one of us. Whether you're mourning the loss of a loved one, whether you're mourning the loss of a relationship that has not quite turned out like we thought that it would, maybe your children have gone a direction that you never expected them to. Maybe your grandchildren did. Maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and you're wondering who on earth you even are. Every one of us steps into here with fractures and fissures. But each one of us in this space also has fragments and flashes of new creation and birth that takes place within us because of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Every one of us. So what if this? What if culture is not a war to be won? What if culture is not some territory to be sieged? But what if This creation, this culture is something to be mended. Something to be brought back to life in new ways. So why on earth would you and I long to preserve beauty in the midst of chaos and war and darkness? Why mend? Well, we mend because it matters. We mend because we are artists apprenticing under the master artist who loves to mend. And we mend because mending is part of making, and making reflects and embodies God's redemptive purposes on this earth. So maybe, just maybe, your life and my life needs a little mending. Maybe the world that we walk in needs a little mending. Maybe the people that we're walking with right now need and are desiring a little mending, but they're not asking us to step in to fix it all. But maybe it's walking with them in the midst of their brokenness. So just maybe, if you're in here this morning reflecting on what Easter means to you and what resurrected life looks like, maybe you're desiring some mending in new ways. Maybe you just need prayers of mending. Maybe you're looking to put Jesus on for the first time ever. Maybe you're buying into the fact, maybe, maybe this Jesus can do some restorative action in my world. So if you fit into any of those categories in any way, shape, or form, or maybe you just 
are drawn into this life of mending. Stand as we come and sing.